Right. Well, you can turn over in your Bibles to Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. Don't forget, next week we're going to have Andrew Rappaport here with us, and he'll be bringing a special message. Next week is, huh? No. Is it Father's Day? Father's Day. Come on, guys. <laughs> or women, whichever. <laughs> Wives, maybe they should know, right? Uh, Father's Day next week. But uh, sure, he'll be bringing a good message for us. And uh, just if you're interested, this, this little workshop he's doing is going to be great. It's going to teach you how to better equip yourselves to study the Word of God. And we can always do that uh, better all of us, so uh, we want to ask that uh, you carve out some time next Saturday for that, and men, he'll be speaking to us in the morning, and we're going to try to throw together some pizza or something for lunch, so we'll have lunch together as well next week. But um, this morning, as we turn our hearts to God's Word, Second <clears throat> Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, I'd ask you to stand, I've been sitting through the last song, so we'll stand in honor of God's word, and I just want to read once again for us verses 13 to 17 and try to finish this up today, hopefully, we'll see. He says in verse 13, he, Paul writes to this church in Thessalonica, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you, through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Verse 16, now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Father, we ask you to bless our study this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We've been looking at the kind of the the revealing of the Antichrist, and we've worked our way all the way down to chapter 2, verse 13 through 17, as he closes out this, this chapter. And we're calling it Standing Firm in the Faith in Trials. Because that's exactly what was going on in this small church that Paul was writing to. It was a relatively new church, probably maybe not even a year old in the Lord. And they were brand new believers in Christ. And yet they were under a lot of persecution. And so Paul writes chapter 1 and he talks about the coming of the Lord. And how they will be, as the church, taken out during the coming wrath of God upon the world, the tribulation time, and we are not destined for wrath, the Bible says, but we are children of the light, not darkness. So Paul explains that in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, but then he also touches on it in the very first couple verses here, because he tells them that, hey, you know what, Uh, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him. And he tells them, don't be shaken, don't be alarmed, don't be worried, you could say. And they were worried because somebody wrote another letter that said it was from Paul and and Timothy and Silas. And and, and they thought, wow, maybe Paul's going back on his word. Maybe we aren't going to be taken out of here. Maybe we are in the day of the Lord. And so Paul had to write to them, 
this second chapter and begin to explain to them, no, you can't be in the day of the Lord because the rapture didn't happen first, and the rapture has to happen first, that catching away, um, being brought up to him before the day of the Lord will come. And so he was saying, stop thinking you're in the day of the Lord. You're not in the day of the Lord because the Antichrist hasn't been revealed yet. He won't be revealed till after the rapture. And so he tells them basically, in summary, the first uh, several verses there, he, he tells them, look, this Antichrist is coming in, and here's what he's going to be like. And we went into all that. But then in verse 13, he says, but, and it's a contrast. And he says, as opposed to those who would believe the lie of the Antichrist, and the only people that are going to believe the lie of the Antichrist are who? Unbelievers. Unbelievers. You can't be a believer and believe the Antichrist. That's impossible. So uh, it's going to be unbelievers that believe the lie of the Antichrist, that he is the Messiah, and they will worship him. And thinking that, okay, this is the way out, but then he will basically start this whole process of the tribulation with signing a peace treaty with Israel, and everybody will look to him as a world leader, and he will have supernatural powers, the Bible says, that powers to do miracles and works and wonders, and people will worship this individual. And for three and a half years, everybody will think it's the best thing that ever hit the earth. They got rid of all the crazy Christians, and now we got our God here, this Antichrist guy, and and he's not um, obviously calling himself Antichrist. Remember, anti doesn't just mean against, but it could mean in the stead of. And so he's imposing his own self as the Messiah. He's saying, I am the Christ. And so people begin to believe this, unbelievers. They worship him. Uh, Israel signs the peace treaty. And then three and a half years in to the tribulation, once again, he lies and he breaks his covenant with Israel. He stops all the sacrifices that he allowed them to do in their newly built temple. And he goes in and he desecrates the temple. And he declares himself to be God. And he says, everyone has to worship me and me alone. And if you do not... I will kill you. And sometimes it's a quick thing. Other times, he says, basically, he sets up a system. He's a world leader. He sets up a system whereby you have to have some kind of a token, a a mark. The Bible says specifically on your forehead or your right hand to buy and purchase to do anything. Can you imagine not being able to buy gas or food or get access to banks It's going to turn south real quick. And people are going to see that. And remember, there will be believers that are coming into the tribulation. After the rapture, I'm sure some people will get saved. They will be ushered into the tribulation because they missed the rapture. They weren't believers then. And maybe they were considering Christ, but they didn't fully reject the gospel. I think those that fully rejected the gospel before the rapture It says that God will give them a delusion to believe the lie. But there are people who even now are considering Christ. They haven't wrote it out, but they haven't made a commitment to Christ. And all of a sudden, if the rapture happened right now and you were left here, you would probably say, wow, those crazy Christians were right. I better get my heart right with the Lord. And you would probably fall on your knees and repent right here, unless you just have a hardened heart that is beyond uh, the, the saving work of God really. And so it's important to understand that 
as believers come into this tribulation, they're going to know who this Antichrist individual is. Why? Because he's the guy that signed the peace treaty with Israel. But everybody else is going to be deceived. And then at the midpoint, he will be revealed. And so he gives this exhortation to stand firm all the way down in verse 15, and we're going to be looking at that today. He says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that were taught by us. Now, traditions, if you have grown up in a church like I did, the Roman Catholic Church, the word tradition kind of just rubs you the wrong way. But we all have traditions. I'm sure if I came over to your house on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, there would be certain traditions that you do every year with your family. There's nothing wrong with traditions, okay? But here, what Paul is really explaining to us is that, you know what? You hold fast to these teachings or these traditions. Don't break away from what the apostles, from what Christ has taught us. Don't believe this other letter that somebody wrote, some random guy that, you know, is an imposter. Don't believe that. Hold fast to what we have taught you. But he says there, stand firm. And we talked about that last week, and it's a present tense command, meaning that it's not a, a one-time thing. You don't say, well, okay, I'm going to take my stand for Christ, and then you never have to do anything the rest of your life. No, this is a, uh, you could be translating it, keep standing firm. As believers, that's what we're called to do. And in this world, it's hard to do sometimes. But we began to look at these reasons for this exhortation in verses 13 to 17. And he starts off there with that word but, which I said is a, this, this contrast to those who believe the lie. And last week we looked at verse 13, and first of all, one of the reasons was the choice of God. Because he says right there, because God chose you as the first fruits. He chose you. And this word means that he didn't choose you based upon who you are, or what you can do for him, or what you have done for him, or what you want to do for him. No, this word says that he chose you based on his own desire to choose you, and nothing more. There's no reason why God should choose us to be saved. Not one. And so that's why we believe that our salvation is so special. Right? Because there's nothing that we deserved to be chosen, and it tells us, basically, he did this before the foundation of the world. And this doctrine of God's sovereign election has been the source of a lot of consternation within the church because, basically, it crosses human pride when you realize you didn't have anything to do with your salvation. It was all God. It exalts God. It produces joy. It grants incredible privileges It promotes holiness in the lives of those who are elect, and it also provides security. And that's what Paul was trying to do here. That's why he uses these words. He wants these Thessalonican believers to be secure in their faith. And they were troubled because they thought somehow they had missed a rapture and the day the Lord began, and here they are right in the middle of it, and they're thinking, what's going on? They were worried. There was a lot of persecution going on, so it wasn't unlike that they would think something like that. But you know what? It gives us security knowing that God, when he begins a work that he starts in our hearts and our lives, he will complete it. He will bring it to pass. That's what the Bible says. And so we don't have to worry about our salvation in Christ, being that you're in Christ. 
Now, you may look at your life and say, well, I don't know if I'm in Christ. Then you better start examining your own heart. But it's very important to understand that God's sovereign election begins, really, it becomes operative through the sanctification of the Spirit. And we talked a little bit about this last week. And we said, basically, this sanctifying work, he says there that God chose us to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Um, Salvation is by, what? It's by grace through faith. But you know what? You still have to believe. See, the problem with a lot of people that believe in election is they believe that, well, then humans have no responsibility. And that's simply not the case. You don't wait, go to bed one night, never hearing about Christ, and because you're elect, you wake up the next morning going, wow, now I'm saved. I don't even know what happened. Never heard of Jesus. And see, this, this theology is floating around. You hear about it all the time, about people who, in some foreign land, didn't even hear the gospel. But somehow, through a vision or something, they came to Christ. That flies in the face of what Scripture says. And so we have to really examine that. So the human factor in God's sovereign, loving regeneration of our souls is what? Faith in the truth. Faith in the truth. Acts 16.31 says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will what? You will be saved. But you have to believe. You can't just say, well, I'm just trusting God's going to elect me. No. Because election is something that's already been done. And we talked about that last week, when he chose us from the very beginning at the first fruits. Uh, When is that? Well, it's before the foundation of the world, as Ephesians 1 tells us. Before the foundation of the world, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, we weren't even here physically on this earth when God chose us. So there's nothing in and of ourselves that could be appealing to God. Well, why did he choose us? We we talked about this. It says right there in the text, to be saved. That's why he chose us. He wanted us to be saved. How did he choose us? Through this sanctifying process of the Holy Spirit and belief of the truth. And that's the, the two key areas there. It's the divine sovereign election of God, but it's also the human factor of belief. There's a lot of people who believe in election And so what do they do? They say, well, why even evangelize? Why even pray? Why do anything? If God's got it all worked out before the world began, well, we do it because God instructs us to do it. He tells us to what? Go into all the world, right? And and preach and teach and make disciples. We don't know who's elect and who's not. We're called to be obedient. And so he says there, through this sanctification by the Spirit, believe in the truth. The sanctification part is God's part. <clears throat> He's the one that saves us. That word sanctified means to what? Be separate. It means taking, taking something that's in a group and, and separating it. Making it holy. Okay? When we say our God is holy, why is he holy? Because there's none like him. There's no one that even can hold a candle to our God. He created everything we see around us. And see, modern theology was, would, would have us to believe in world, worldly wisdom comes in and says, well, I'm sure there's other gods, and I'm sure that that's, they're just as important. No, they're not. 
And, and that's where we have to really make sure that we don't compromise in those areas. So this word sanctify means to simply be set apart by the Holy Spirit. Sovereignly, miraculously, divinely, this process detaches us from the power and the penalty of sin. It detaches us from it. The Bible says a, a new man is created, does it not? Separated from sin, detached from sin. It's described as the life of God within us, as Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's the divine nature that actually becomes ours. Why? Because we believe the truth. We put our faith and trust in the truth that Jesus came. He lived. He died. He was raised from the dead. And he did all that to forgive our sins. And so rather than try to continue to work out my own salvation, working for it and and trying to wash away my own sin, he says, no, don't do that. Put your faith, your trust in the work that Christ has done. And you say, well, I thought the Bible said that we should work out our own salvation. Well, it does. But that's after we're saved. We're not working for our salvation. We're working out our salvation, which speaks of this sanctifying process. And so when the life of God is reborn within us and we become a divine, eternal child of God, it's, it's something that longs for what is pure, what is holy. And it delights in God's word. It, as Romans 7 says, it has holy desires. It has holy aspiration, holy longings. And this new creation on the inside, guess what? It's fit for heaven. It's ready. Why? Because all sin has been washed away. And it's fit to be in the presence of God because it was God who made us holy. We couldn't make ourselves holy. It's God that did it. So as believers, we're regenerated, we're born again. The Bible says that the old me, the old nature dies and a new one is born. I use those terms because they're familiar to us. But you know what? To be honest, they're really not biblical. You're not going to find new nature, old nature necessary in those words exactly in the Bible. We like to use them. And a lot of times what it does is it, it, it creates this thinking that somehow we have this war going on within us. Good Christians believe this. That you don't, as a believer, you don't just have one nature, you have two. You have the old nature, right? And then you have the new nature. And they use an illustration, they say, yeah, whichever one you're going to feed, that's the one that's going to win. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's not true, biblically. And you say, well, why do people believe that? Because we have sin. We're not perfect. So the question is, where does the sin come from? And so I want to spend a little time just talking about that. But if you want salvation, Paul's point over and over throughout Romans and other areas is that if you want salvation, you must believe. You must follow Christ. You must believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's our human response to God's choosing us. The divine transformation worked by the Spirit requires that element of faith, faith in the truth. So you have to hear the truth. You can't become a Christian 
on an island somewhere just sitting under a palm tree contemplating your navel. It's not going to work. It's not going to happen. The Bible is very specific. Romans 10. What does he say? Paul says, how will they hear? If what? If they don't have a preacher. If they don't have a Christian that's willing to tell them, how will they hear? You cannot be saved until you hear the truth. And see, a lot of times we take the truth of the gospel and we dumb it down to the point where we just want people, oh, just come to church. You know, church really isn't a place for unbelievers, frankly. They're welcome. We want them to hear the truth. But it's not a place for unbelievers. It's a place for what? Believers. It's a, it's a place to be equipped with the word of God. It's a, it's a place where God's people come together to worship. Unbelievers can't worship a God they do not know. They're at enmity with God. They need their sins forgiven first. <clears throat> and so the Spirit regenerates one who hears the truth, who believes the truth. And so the, the work of this Spirit, the sanctifying process, becomes really operative in our life. It starts when we believe and trust the truth that Christ said, uh, who he said he was, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father except through him. So Paul says basically that God has eternally chosen you, and he's chosen you purely on the basis of his love alone. Nothing in you warrants his love. He does it because he wants to do it. And he brought that choice into reality by saving you in time through this powerful, transforming work of the Holy Spirit. It gives you new desires. It gives you new, um, uh, just a whole new life, really. The Bible says that you've been what? Born again. The Bible says your old life died. You were born brand new. Now, a lot of people, like I said, ask the question, well, doesn't a, a Christian have an old nature? Doesn't a Christian have an old nature? And I believe that, you know, when you use those terms, like I said, um, we create a problem because they're not biblical terms. You're not going to find the word old nature or new nature in the Scripture anywhere. So you have to realize that those are artificial terms that we invented to kind of make this process of sin in a Christian's life a little more easier to explain. We've kind of come up with this on our own. So when you say, does a person have an old nature, what you're basically saying is that, you know what, where does the sin come from? It must come from our old nature. No. Your old nature is dead. It died. When you got saved... The Bible says you've got a what? A new nature. It says you're a new person where? In Christ. And so people believe that, well, now you've got the new nature, you've got the old nature, and they're having this dogfight with each other. The problem is, with that view, is when you think about it, and the terminology the Bible uses related to our salvation, when you say, well, I'm just, I have an old nature, and then when I become a Christian, I'm just adding a new nature to who I am. That makes salvation addition. Does it not? You're saying, I'm the same person, but I'm just adding Christ to my life now. So now I'm stuck in this quandary. Do I listen to the old nature? Do I listen to the new nature? And that's a very 
basic illustration, but that's what a lot of people believe. And if you believe that, basically you're saying, when you got saved, nothing happens to your old nature. It's still there, living well. I just got a new nature now. I just got something added to my life. So basically you're saying salvation is not transformation, but it's simply addition. You're saying, I'm just adding a new nature to my old nature. No, the Bible does not speak of that. The Bible speaks of salvation as something that is transformative. That's why it uses the word born again. Right? He doesn't just say, oh, you just add Christ to your life. No, he says, you know what, you're so bad off. Your nature is so messed up with sin. You need to be completely born again. And the Bible says that he creates us in Christ to be a new creature in Christ. Yes, yay, big time yay. But if you think about it, if you believe you have two natures, then nothing's really changed. You just added something new to it. That doesn't sound very transformative to me. Um, and Christ constantly says it has to be a metamorphosis. It has to be transformation. It has to be a new creature in Christ. So your old person, your old man, your old nature, whatever you want to call it, is, is transformed. It's eliminated in the sense of conversion, and you become a new creation. And so to answer the question, simply, do you have, do you have an old nature? I would say no. It's dead. It's dead. Now, you're still stuck in this body, <laughs> which is sinful in and of itself. And that's what Paul relates to in, throughout Romans about the, this, the, the flesh, the humanness. Um, so it's important that we understand what the Bible teaches on this because it affects how we live our Christian lives, frankly. You know, if you're waking up every day, you got, you know, your old nature tapping you on the shoulder and you got to make a choice. Oh, do I listen to that? Do I listen to this? You don't have any victory in Christ. Where's the victory in Christ in that? The victory in Christ is when, when Paul says, hey, you know what? <clears throat> because Christ lived and he died, right? You lived and died with him. And when he was raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death, guess what? As a believer, you were raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death, because we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to our human bodies, our flesh, yeah, we still are sinners. That's why the Bible says, you know, if, if we confess our sins or since we confess our sins, why? Because we have sins. There's not a person in here, I don't care how long you've been a believer or how short you've been a believer, you have sin. We all have sin, probably daily. And it's, it's so <clears throat> life-transforming when you realize that God has forgiven all of your sin, past present, future, everything. And you are complete in Christ. And so Paul says here that this is something that in verse 15 you need to stand firm. He gives two commands and to hold to the traditions. And Satan a lot of times uses persecutions. He uses trials in our life. He uses whatever he can get his hands on to get people's, to get God's people to what? To doubt the truth. To doubt the truth, to doubt his sovereignty, to doubt his love for you. 
You know, when you start thinking thoughts like, well, you know, if God really loved me, I, I wouldn't have all these trials in my life. No, it's just the opposite. It's because God loves you that you have these trials in your life. Why? Because he's trying to clean you up for heaven through the process of sanctification. And we all need a lot of rough corners rounded off. And so he uses trials. He uses tribulations. And so Paul emphasizes both the sovereignty and his love. And you notice there in verse 13 where he says, we ought to always give thanks uh, to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. You go from being an enemy of God when you put your faith and trust in Christ to becoming somebody who is beloved by the Lord because he chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. If you don't believe the truth about Christ, you're not saved. You can't have a different theology than what the Bible describes Christ to be. And you say, well, was it really that important? Yes, it is. And it's unfortunate that the church is so dumbed down today that they think, well, you know, they believe in their Jesus. Well, they may believe in their Jesus, but their Jesus does not save them. And, and it's very important that we understand that. And that's why Peter told uh, the, the folks he was writing to in 1 Peter chapter 5, he tells the persecuted saints there, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety, all your cares on him. Why should we do that, Peter? Because he what? He cares for you. Think about it. God who created everything around you, who created you, who created your eye, who created your heart, who created your complex system of cells and veins and arteries and all that works, he created it all. Do you ever think? And he he did it millions and millions and millions and millions of times, and they're all different. And yet the Bible says he loves you. He loves you. That's why we believe that when Christ died on the cross, he didn't die some general death. I'm just dying for everybody. And then if you believe in me, then, then you'll be saved. No. When he died on the cross, he died a specific death. He died for you. He died for me. He died for all the elect, for all who would ever put their faith, their trust in Christ for salvation. And so Peter emphasizes this, and he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And then he tells us the same thing. He doesn't say stand firm. He says, resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, listen, will himself restore. Personal. He will confirm. He will strengthen. He will establish you. See, Peter's emphasis on God's sovereignty, his mighty hand, his calling, his eternal glory, all this is because he cares for us. He cares for us. But also, he says, we need to resist. We need to stand firm. And see, this is what Paul is telling the Thessalonians they need to do. And it's based upon, first and foremost, the choice of God. When you understand that God has chosen you, you didn't choose him. 
all the worries go away. You can't worry about losing your salvation if God chose you, if God picked you before the foundations of the world and, and you were saved. What is there to worry about? Well, secondly, not only that, but he says the calling of God. Look at verse 14. He says, to this he called you through our gospel. He called us. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things what? We know this verse, all things work together. Doesn't say that all things are good, but all things work together for good. And then he qualifies, he says, for those, listen, who are called according to his purpose. And he goes on, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, knew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the first fruits among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also what? Called. There it is. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you know our glorification is already done in God's mind? It's already accomplished. It's not something that we, I mean, we look forward to it because we're, we're under the constraints of time. But in God's mind, it's already a done thing. Because God transcends time. It's something that we don't have to worry about. We, we have something to look forward to. See, this is why, you know, when we look at this world and we look at the fallenness and the sinfulness and the corruption, whether it's in systems, you know, political systems, healthcare systems, whatever, there's so much corruption, so much evil, really. And sinfulness. You know, you can, you can freak yourself out real quick. Just watch the news. I mean, you know, you start watching the news, man. It just sends your mind in places it doesn't need to go. Because you know what? I realized that, yeah, this world is falling apart. I mean, there's no mention of the United States in the end times in the Bible. Where does it go? I don't know. Maybe it's completely wiped out through nuclear holocaust. Maybe it's absorbed into the EU. Who knows? But as strong as this nation has been for as many years as we've been here, I'm not saying it's over because I always have hope. And that's what we need to do. We need to pray that God would have grace and mercy and grant repentance to our country. You know, it's hard to sing God bless America anymore. It really is. Because I'm looking at this world we live in, this nation especially, I know what the scripture says. He's not going to bless it. You kill unborn children. You, you glorify fornication and promiscuous behavior that God condemns to an nth degree. I mean, it's just off the charts. I mean, we're dealing with a minority of people in this world. And they've blown it up to honor them. I mean, this whole month is given over to it, right? And I think rather than just say, well, that's the way it is, you know, I think there's something within us that, that should call us to fight back. I don't think we need to just lay down and say, well, it's not political correct to say that, you know, whatever it might be, that that lifestyle's wrong. Well, it's wrong not because I say it, but because the Bible says it. 
in a couple weeks, we're going to be looking at this. The idea of, I mean, the homosexual alphabet community has basically hijacked our system for their benefit, even though it's a minority of people. The problem is even those people that don't practice that lifestyle have bought into this lie. And I think, you know, it's time that we begin to look at what God's word says and line it up with what they're saying and say, no, you know what? You're wrong. Sorry if it offends you, but you're wrong. And you will be held account one day for your behavior. See, this is what Christ came for. He came to inject truth into a sinful world. And so this glorification that he talks about in Romans is something that we have to look forward to. And all the darkness and sin of this world, really that salvation, that glorification that we have to look forward to looks even better. See, God is using the backdrop of hopelessness and sin and lostness in this world to steer people to the glory of Christ. To say, hey, you don't have to live in that situation. You can, you can look to, to God to change your heart when you come to him in faith. Well, it's also important, not just the choice of God and the calling of God, that we, have, we look forward to that day to be in his presence and, and to realize the glory of God in our, our own lives fully. Romans 8, 17 18 tells this to us. Paul, he says, If children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs, listen, with Christ, provided, here's what he says, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. See, the Christian life is not a life of, uh, you know, a walk in the park in the, in the roses. It, it's a life, really, you're being called to a life of suffering. A life of denying yourself. A life that says, you know what, I'd, I want to do this, but I have to do this. Why? Because God's telling me to. This is what God is instructing me to. Um, it, it's so important that we realize that. That's what we've been talking about on, on Wednesday nights. Discipleship. What it means to follow Christ. I be, really believe there's many people in the church today that come to church and say they're disciples of Christ and they're nothing Further from the truth. And we need to make sure that we share and continue to share the truth with them. But it says he considers this sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared, listen, with the glory that is to be revealed in us. See, we have already been glorified in God's eyes, but it hasn't been revealed to us yet. (laughs) And so all the suffering that we go through on a daily basis is not something that even holds a candle to what we have to look forward to. So we have basically the choice, the calling of God, and also the commandments of God. Verse 15, he says, hold the traditions, hold to these traditions. Keep these ordinances, uh, as he says in in 1 Corinthians 11.2. The tradition is not something that's bad. A tradition is something um, that can be Really, when you, when you hold to the traditions that, that Christ taught and the apostles taught, that's what he's talking about. We don't have the privilege of making up our own truths as believers. And this is what has happened 
in church after church after church. Well, they don't understand this doctrine, so they're going to just kind of create their own belief system and, and say, well, here's what we believe. Who cares what you believe? What does the Bible teach? What does the Bible say? That's far more important. Those are the traditions, the commandments of God that we should hold on to. And he says here in verse 15, he says, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. These, this group of believers in Thessalonica was very well taught by Paul. He was there only a short time, but he taught them about everything. He taught them about all the eschatology, taught them about the Antichrist. He taught them about everything because every other verse he's saying, don't you remember when I told you this? Don't you remember when I told you that? He's constantly having to remind them when I was with you, you know, we weren't playing tiddlywinks out on the back porch. I was teaching you about the God that saved you, about his word. And so he says, don't break away from that. And we need to be careful to hold fast to the traditions of the word of God. It says, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And so he just wants them to know that, you know what, uh, I'm not writing something new to you. This letter that was floating around here teaching you a different end times theology is wrong. Uh, don't believe that. Hold to the traditions that we have already given you. And then in verses 16 to 17, we also see the comfort of God. The comfort of God. Because that's his whole purpose in writing here in chapter 2, he wants to comfort their hearts, but he's got to work through all the details of the Antichrist and everything. And he finally comes down to verse 16, and he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Once, once again, it's personal. He doesn't say that Christ guy up there in heaven, you know, the man upstairs or whatever. No, he says, our Lord Jesus Christ himself. See, you have to understand your relationship with Christ is a personal relationship or it should be if it's not it's not legitimate because the bible says everywhere he saved you he saved you he loves you he cares for you it's very personal and then he says and god our father I love the next three words who loved us <laughs> who loved us once again, it speaks to his sovereign love, a love that he chose to bless us with, to lavish us with. The Bible says that the, the love of Christ is what? Shed abroad in our hearts? That's how much he loves us? You're not going to get any more love from God than he's already given you. So you don't even pray for it. Don't, oh God, give me more love. It's impossible. He's given you all the love that he can give you in Christ. And once you begin to realize that, what does it do? It, it really energizes your ability to live your faith. And that's really the explanation for this comfort here. Where, where do we get the comfort of God? On the fact that he loves you. That he loved us. And you notice his past tense, he loved us. Before the foundation of the world, that's when he chose us. That's when he put this eternal love on us. And then it says he gave us eternal comfort. Do you like to be comfortable? Anybody here not like to be comfortable? I, I mean, I've never met somebody, oh, I just love to not be comfortable. No. You know, I mean, it's, it, comfort is something, it's one of the blessings of God, really. When you can 
you know, find that, that spot in your bed or on your couch or whatever, that you're just comfortable and you can just kind of like drift off to sleep and you're comfortable. Well, here, we're not talking about temporary comfort. The extent of his comfort, he says that he gave us what? Eternal comfort. This is what we have to look forward to. All the aches, all the pains, all the worries, and everything is going to be gone. Because all that disrupts our comfort, does it not? I mean, how many times do you go throughout the week, everything's going fine, and then something slams on you, some trial, some tribulation pops up, and all the comfort just seems to be sucked out of the room. And all of a sudden, you're laying in bed, and you can't sleep, and you're breaking out in a cold sweat, you're worrying about whatever, and you, you, your comfort is gone. And you have to what? You have to go backtrack. You have to repent. Say, God, I'm not trusting in you. I'm trying to figure this out on my own. Lord, help me to, to put my trust in you because I know you care for me. See, that's where this kind of comfort comes from. But it, he, it's something he has already given to us who loved us and gave us eternal comfort. And the essence of this comfort is simply good hope through grace. The essence, that's where it comes from. I mean, we all need hope, do we not? I mean, we need hope every day. And that hope has to come from God and God alone and his word. The hope comes from us gathering together as the body of Christ so that we can support one another in prayer and study of God's word and fellowship. It's through or it's by God's grace, you could say. And what does that mean? He's giving us this this eternal hope. The essence of it is, is something that we do not deserve. We definitely don't deserve it. But he gives us to it, gives, gives it to us anyway. That's what grace is. Grace is God giving to us what? What we don't deserve, right? And mercy is God withholding from us what we do deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve his wrath. Why? Because we're fallen, sinful beings. But when By his grace, he gives us something we don't deserve, our salvation. See, we need to stop thinking that we deserve salvation. There's too many Christians that think that. That's that's what I deserve. I deserve to be saved. I deserve to go to heaven. If you ever want to know if somebody's a Christian, just ask them that simple question. Why do you think you should go to heaven? Why do you think you should go to heaven? If they give you... Any answer other than I don't, and it's only because of the work of Christ, they're not saved. <laughs> they're not saved. I've heard way too many people who are churchgoers, who are professing Christians, you ask them that question, why do you deserve to go to heaven? Well, you know, I'm, I'm an elder, I'm a deacon, I'm a pastor, I, I'm a good person, pastor. Really? That's like a big fat zero in God's mind. No, wrong answer. Don't pass, go. The door opens, you know, poof. Not good. You don't want that to happen. The proper answer is, you know what? No, I, I don't deserve to go to heaven, but I'm, I'm going to heaven based upon my faith in who? In Christ. Because I've given up trying to do my way to heaven. I'm, I've given up trying to perform and satisfy this God who could never, ever be satisfied by what I do. And so you know what? I finally gave up and said, you know what, God? I can't do this. 
And that's when he says, yeah, you're right. Yay! All right, you finally made it. And guess what? You don't have to do anything because I've already done it for you. My son has already done everything that you need to do. You simply need to put your faith, your trust in my son, in his work. And then you see, lastly here, the effect of this comfort. How does this affect us? Well, it tells us in verse 17. Comfort your hearts, and then what? Establish them in every good work and word. That word, sterizo, basically in the original language, is used 14 times. And it, it, it means to kind of establish, to firm up. To allow you to stand firm. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the grace of all, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, listen, will himself what? Restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. There it is. He will do that for you. What a wonderful truth. I mean, it's almost like you can just say amen and go home. But he, we had a whole other chapter. We're not going to do it this morning, obviously. We'll do this in two weeks. But really, the first five verses of chapter 3 kind of just fall right in with the end of chapter 2 because then he says, finally, brothers, pray for us. Pray for us. And that's what we're called to do as a church. We're called to gather together, to sing praises to him, to have fellowship, to study his word, and then we're also called together to what? To pray. To pray. To pray for our country. To pray for our leaders. To pray for our president, vice president, those who are running. Whoever it might be. We're called to pray for those in authority over us. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, you know what? They need our prayers. I mean, they definitely need our prayers. Because things are going south real quick. We need to pray for our neighbors and our family members who don't know Christ. We need to pray for our church, pray for our missionaries. There's so many things to pray for. That's why we offer prayer times. We have a prayer time for the ladies Thursday morning. Prayer for time for the men Thursday morning. You know, it's important that we gather together as the body of Christ as the, da- the days darken. <laughs> you know, you don't want to be out there on your own. You don't want to think, well, I can just come once a week and, yeah, I got my shot and I'll make it next Sunday. It's not enough. It's simply not enough. We need the body of Christ. We need the body of Christ. We need to be together for his glory and for our edification and strength. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we do pray that you would minister to our hearts, um, even in our fellowship afterwards, Lord, as we uh, have a time of, of food and fellowship across the way in the fellowship hall and we just want you to know if you're here for the first time you're visiting we we have more than enough food and we'd love to have you stay and be able to talk to you a little more about some of these things but lord we pray that you would draw our hearts even as christians closer to christ help us not to get cluttered up with all the things of the world all the things of of this life and work schedules and all everything lord because it's so easy we all do it on occasion But, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to what you've called us to do as a Bible-believing church here in this dark peninsula area, this dark corridor they call 
of the Bay Area. People need Christ. And Lord, we, we have the truth, and I pray that we be faithful to minister that truth to their hearts. Lord, we pray that even this morning, if there's one who's in the sounding, hearing of my voice, whether through the radio or the internet or even here this morning personally, Lord, that if they haven't put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would do that work in their heart to draw them to Christ, that they would not be caught unaware, that they would not be caught without Christ when he returns. And Father, we pray that you would draw their hearts to you, that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I need your mercy. I need your grace, Lord. I want to put my faith and trust in Christ and follow him all the the days of my life. And you cry out from your heart with that prayer and, and be sincere, and he will answer that prayer. And he will make you a new person in Christ. And you will see your life transformed. And Lord, he desires to love, uh, we desire to love you with all of our heart and our soul and our mind, but we're not capable of doing that. Even as believers, we fail. We fail in the tasks that you give us to do, the commands that you tell us to follow. Lord, we fail daily. And Lord, we're just thankful for your grace and your mercy in our lives, that we don't have to earn our way to heaven, that Christ has completed that work on the cross. And he rose victorious over sin and death. And so we can rejoice in the fact that we are victorious over sin and death as well. And for the first time, Lord, in our lives as believers, we can say no to sin and have the power to walk away. Not giving it that open door in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would purify us. Keep us holy before you and before others as well. We pray bless our food across the way as well. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen. Amen.